Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 1525 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figuleling in our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, SADC leaders meet in Pretoria to discuss political tensions in Lesotho, and world leaders prepare for UN General Assembly. In economics news, South Africa's power utility ESCOM seeks 20% hike in tariffs, and in sports news, the Supersport face Zesco today in CAF Confederation Cup quarterfinal. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has announced the appointment of his wife Grace to a key post within his ruling ZANU-PF party. The move is seen by critics as a way of positioning her to a role that would influence the first family's wishes in the electoral process. President Mugabe appointed a five-member elections directorate that will be responsible for overseeing the running of general elections in 2018. The five-member committee includes the First Lady and will be chaired by the local government minister, Xavier Kusukuwere. The Southern African Development Community, SADC, will convene a double-traker summit of heads of state and government in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. This comes after recent political and security developments in Lesotho. The heads of state summit will feature a report back from the ministerial fact-finding mission, which was deployed to the Mountain Kingdom last month following the assassination of the head of the army, Meanwhile, a suspect has been arrested for the killing of Mutsumutsu. Poko Lisohonolo is a senior prosecutor. Mr. Aramepana appeared before court being accused of murder. That is section 41, Red with 109 of Penal Code Act number 6 of 2010. In, in that, uh, he was accused to have unlawfully and intentionally shot Alleged for that matter, short one, the general, the commander in the LDF. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has lashed out at opposition parties, saying they always approach the courts before they have no pro- because they have no proper policies in place to beat the ruling ANC at the ballot box. The Supreme Court of Appeal earlier reserved judgment in President Zuma's appeal to have a high court ruling overturned that the National Prosecuting Authority had acted irrationally by dropping hundreds of corruption charges against him. Addressing members of the African Ministries Association and ANC branches in Port Elizabeth, the President tried to assure supporters that the ruling party would win back the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. I think we all learned 
They have no policies, nothing. Ever since they took over, you have never heard them saying how are they going to lead these municipalities. They only know the point of order. You can never lead a country with a point of order. You must have a policy that says we will do this and we will do that. Amnesty International says it has evidence that Bumi's security forces have burned dozens of Rohingya Muslim villages in Myanmar. Amnesty says it has documented a clear campaign of ethnic cleansing from satellite images of large-scale fires. Eyewitness reports from refugees, including mobile phone footage and phone calls from those still in Myanmar. The army says its campaign is against Rohingya militants following a series of attacks on army outposts. And finally, the United States has called on China and Russia to take direct actions to rein in North Korea after it fired a ballistic missile over Japan into the Pacific. The launch from near Pyongyang came after the United Nations Security Council imposed an eighth set of sanctions on the country over its ballistic missile and atomic weapons progress. The BBC's Stephen MacDonald reports. This is the first North Korean missile launch since the imposition of the latest round of sanctions against the isolated regime. What appears to have been a ballistic missile was fired over Japan, prompting sirens and alerts sent directly to people's phones. Here in Seoul, President Moon Jae-in called an emergency meeting of the National Security Council. He won an election in May, promising to try and reopen a path towards dialogue with the North. But since coming to power, North Korea has launched 10 missile tests and one underground nuclear blast. And that's the news. Airlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, September the 15th, the 258th day of 2017, with 107 days left in the year. In our top story, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will convene a Southern African Development Community Double Troika Summit to discuss political tensions in Lesotho today. The Heads of State Summit will feature a report back from the ministerial fact-finding mission which was deployed to the Mountain Kingdom last month following the assassination of the head of the army. The summit will take place in Pretoria. Nomabulani reports. The recent political and security tensions in Lesotho have prompted the extraordinary summit to be convened. Last month, Army Commander Juan Tlemutumutu and two other senior officers were killed at the army barracks in the capital, Maseru. The SADC heads of state will engage with the ministerial fact-finding mission that was sent to the Mountain Kingdom following the assassination in order to determine mechanisms needed to support Lesotho. President Jacob Zuma called for the summit as the SADC chair. Presidential spokesperson Bongani Ngulunga. The summit will be briefed on the report of the ministerial fact-finding mission to the Kingdom of Lesotho 
conducted by rogue elements fingered in the Pumapi Commission of Inquiry report in order to chart a way forward on the necessary support to the Kingdom of Lesotho. President Jacob Zuma is expected to be joined by the heads of state and government from the Kingdom of Lesotho, Republic of Angola, Republic of Tanzania and the Republic of Namibia. The summit will be preceded by ministerial meetings in the morning of the same day. The Kingdom's Foreign Affairs Minister, Lesejo Mahoti, has reiterated the call for SADC to deploy troops to the country in order to boost security. Meanwhile, a suspect has been arrested for Mutumutu's killing. Paul Golito Honolo is a senior prosecutor. Mr. Aramepana appeared before court today being accused of murder at his section 41, Red with 109 of Penal Code Act Number 6 of 2010, in, in that uh, he was accused to have unlawfully and intentionally shot, alleged for that matter, shot one, the general, the commander in the LDF. In other developments, the former Minister of Finance, Mampono Khaketla, appeared briefly in court following allegations of corruption. She's been charged with soliciting a 4 million rand bribe for a tender during her tenure. Also in court today was the matter of the former defence minister, Tiriso Mukhosi. He was charged in absentia for the death of a policeman. The officer had been missing since last year. Mukhosi has since fled Lesotho, seeking political asylum in South Africa. I'm Noma Polani in Johannesburg. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's legal counsel has conceded that former National Prosecuting Authority head Mkote Dimche acted irrationally when he dropped the charges against the President in 2009. This concession was made at the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein where Zuma and the National Prosecuting Authority were challenging a high court ruling that he face corruption charges. Mpshe dropped the charges after listening to recordings between his predecessor Bulelani Ngoka and former Scorpions boss Leonard McCarthy discussing whether the indictment against Zuma should be served before or after the 2007 ANC elective conference in Bulukwane. Dabohole Tshaba reports from Bloemfontein. The NPA has stated that the High Court judgment violated the doctrine of separation of powers. NPA's counsel advocate Hilton Epstein argued in the SCA that it was in the interest of justice to drop the charges against President Jacob Zuma. Although he ultimately took the decision, it was a corporate decision, which Mr. Downer called it, and they were all involved in taking the decision. And then, even if it was a corporate decision, he can't review his own decision. So, in fact, he then explains that it was McCarthy who was running with us. Justice Azaka Chalia, who was leading the charge, said Mche applied the wrong case law when he relied on the abuse of processes to withdraw the charges. What he does is he invokes the wrong doctrine. The doctrine abuse of process deals with permanent stays. What I'm putting to you, therefore, is this. That is another indication of a man operating with at least no idea of what he's doing, or alternatively, not applying his mind at all to what he's doing. But with great respect, those reasons are nonsense. During the grilling by acting SCA Deputy President Mohamed Nabza and Justice Azaka Chalia, Zuma's counsel advocate Kem J. Kemp considered that the decision to withdraw the charges against this client was irrational. Can you defend technically the basis at which this decision was arrived? No, I'm not defending that. So you can't defend that. The, so, so what we're at about is that in terms of the decision 
and the technically correct aspects they own. I would accept that. It's just as no, nice. No, well, let's take go a step further. In other words, they made an irrational decision. Well, that is incorrect, yes. Yeah. During exchanges with Justice Navza, advocate Kem J. Kemp said his client should be allowed to make fresh representation before the NPA. You accept that the decision to prosecute will remain extent, but insofar as the actual trial is concerned, you would want formal notice of when it is to proceed and you would want the indictment to be reserved anew and if that is so, all the processes that might follow upon them will then be open to both sides. Yes. Is that... Is that I, I, I accept that proposition, okay. um, Justice Nafsa, because that... Of course, there are difficulties, but they will have to be addressed. Justice Kachalia expressed some reservations on NPA head advocate Sean Abrahams. If Mr. Abrams' concern is that he has to apply his mind fresh to this whole case, we're going to be here nine years later. Then there'll be another review application. And so my anxiety is somehow or the other, after nine years, this matter one way or the other Either there's going to be a permanent stay and this case is over, or the prosecution is going to continue. Those are the simple questions. So what is Mr. Abrams' problem? Meanwhile, DA Federal Council Chairperson James Self has accused President Zuma and NPA lawyers of using delaying tactics to stall on this inevitable prosecution. And there has been abuses of process all the way along. From the time we started, the challenges to our locus standi, the challenges to um, being able to review a decision of this nature, they were simply delaying tactics to prevent uh, Mr. Jacob Zuma from having his day in court. Well, he's now going to have his day in court. Yes, well, every accused person has the right to, be, to give representation. That in itself doesn't alter anything. Justice has been reserved. I'm Tebo in Bloemfontein. Let's go back in time to today in 1984. The leader of the Labour Party, the Reverend H.J. Allen Hendrickser and Amitrand Rajbanzi of the National People's Party are appointed to the South African Cabinet as chairman of the Minister's Council, but neither is given a ministerial portfolio. Both these leaders had accepted the tricameral parliament introduced by President P.W. Bota as a part of his constitution. Reforms. Hendrickser and Rajbanzi were representative of coloured and Indian people in the House of Representatives and House of Delegates, respectively. That's today in history, the year 1984. 43 days to go to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Hashtag the year of Oliver Tambo. Oliver Tambo was born on the 17th of October 1917 in the small village of Ngantolo, about 20 kilometers from Pizana, Bondoland, and died on the 23rd of April 1993. 
It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will join more than 100 heads of state and government at the annual gathering of political heavyweights who attend the United Nations General Assembly in New York. The 72nd session of the Assembly opened on September the 12th ahead of the arrival of King's presidents and prime ministers with delegations in tow in what is considered the largest gathering of world leaders anywhere on the planet. And as Sherwin Bryce Peace reports, there will be a number of firsts with the Secretary General Antonio Guterres presiding over his first General Assembly since becoming UN Chief and United States President Donald Trump, who will be visiting the United Nations for the first time since his inauguration. Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. The mood has changed here at the United Nations in anticipation of the arrival of government delegations in what the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has acknowledged will be a very busy week. Global leaders will gather here next week at a time when our world faces major threats from nuclear peril to global terrorism, from inequality to cybercrime. Hurricanes and floods around the world remind us that extreme weather events are expected to become more frequent and severe due to climate change. No country can meet these tests alone, but if we work together, we can chart a safer, more stable course. And that is why the General Assembly meeting is so important. Security is at a peak. Journalists are overwhelmed by the magnitude of the task, and diplomats are on tenterhooks, hoping that all the high-level meetings, bilaterals, trilaterals, forums and debates will go off without a hitch. With Ban Ki-moon's exit in December, this will be his successor's first time at the helm, warning that the nuclear crisis in North Korea is the most pressing issue Facing the world today. This week's unanimous adoption of a new resolution sends a clear message that the DPRK must comply fully with its international obligations. I call on all member states to ensure the full implementation of these and other relevant Security Council resolutions. But the Security Council unity also creates an opportunity for diplomatic engagement, an opportunity that must be seized. The solution can only be political. Military action could cause devastation on a scale that would take generations to overcome. Besides the general debate, where each delegation provides a country statement, meetings at presidential or ministerial level will include UN reform, climate change and reinforcing the Paris Agreement, financing the 2030 Agenda, A new treaty banning nuclear weapons will open for signatures, while crises in South Sudan, Libya, Mali and the DPRK will also be front and center. Migration is a reality. Migration is here to Listen to Miroslav Lajcik, president of the General Assembly, on the question of migration. United Nations logically is the only platform that can provide this global answer to the issue of migration uh, to offer a global governance because migration is a reality, migration is here to stay for many years as it has been here with us. So I really hope that we will be able to present a document that will show a clear direction and that will be accepted by the white public. While leaders, particularly from Africa, are likely to consistently raise the UN's reform agenda, 
particularly the lack of progress in realigning the Security Council's 72-year-old power dynamic. Reforms will indeed mean something new. They will allow the United Nations to work in a way it never has before. However, reforms will also represent follow-up. The UN today looks very different from that which was established in 1945. This organization has been reforming and evolving over the years. We have seen this through the General Assembly's revitalization process. We must thus see the UN reforms as an opportunity to contribute to an ongoing process, but with a fresh outlook. President Trump will host a high-level meeting with world leaders on UN reform that should provide further clarity on how his administration views the world's preeminent multilateral institution. Political developments in South Africa raise questions about whether this could be President Zuma's final General Assembly. Nigeria's convalescing President Mahmoudou Buhari embarks on his first international appearance since returning home from treatment in London, while Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe, at 93, will be among, if not the oldest head of state, to ever address the world body. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Two anti-nuclear activists from Russia and the United States are touring South Africa where they'll be holding seminars on the dangers of nuclear energy. This follows the recent Cape Town High Court ruling which set aside nuclear agreements signed by South Africa with vendor countries, Russia, South Korea and the United States. The court declared the agreements unlawful and unconstitutional. The judgment came after environmental lobby group EarthLife Africa and the South African Faith Communities Environment Institute approached the court in October 2015, challenging government's decision to buy up to 9,600 megawatts of nuclear energy. For more on this, Tepo Pakhane spoke to Vladimir Slavyak, an environmental and energy activist from Russia environmental group I'm here to actually bring information to South African people about why nuclear is a very bad choice, what kind of negative consequences it brings, uh, and um, uh, that's, that's what I feel I have to do, uh, because Russia was, uh, for quite a long time, experimenting with nuclear power, and we've got a lot of very bad consequences of it. I just don't want South Africa to repeat it. I think South Africa deserves better. Just tell us more. Give us examples of uh, what happened in Russia after they uh, went along with implementing this nuclear. What were the consequences and what are the potential consequences for South Africa if we were to go that route, uh, Vladimir? Well, first of all, you're risking uh, having nuclear accidents. We had uh, a lot of uh, medium and small accidents, but we also have two big accidents. One is a very big uh, Chernobyl accident back in 1986, where um, about a million of people suffered uh, in different ways as a result of it. And a very big territory in different countries across the world uh, was contaminated with radiation. There was another accident in 1957 when the explosion in the storage of radioactive waste um, uh, resulted in a contamination of 20,000 square kilometers and the evacuation of 10,000 people. Uh, but um, one more important thing is economics. Um, nuclear power is absolutely most expensive way to get your energy at the moment. And, of course, there is an issue about uh, nuclear waste. Uh, once you... Um, 
well, using nuclear power, uh, you start to produce a waste uh, that uh, some uh, types of those waste uh, will be dangerous for people in the environment for uh, 300 years, but some types will be dangerous for quarter a million of years. People in South Africa should really uh, think uh, about whether nuclear is a good way to go and uh, really assess all those consequences. It's interesting you mentioned the Western Cape High Court, um, which uh, set aside the nuclear agreements that are signed by the South African government uh, with uh, uh, Russia, the US, uh, and South Korea. Um, you, You say that this um, uh, judgment doesn't mean that um, South Africa will not go ahead with uh, these agreements or its plans to procure uh, a nuclear energy. There are uh, several agreements between South African governments and other countries on nuclear, but the, the Russian agreement, only one that includes a lot of details, such as where they want to build reactors, what kind of reactors, uh, over what period of time, and the rest of the agreements, there was no specifics at all. So I think the only realistic agreement among those five or six, I don't remember exactly, that's been placed uh, in the parliament, it's a Russian one. Uh, And uh, the decision of court was that this concrete deal was signed in the illegal way. It doesn't mean the deal is cancelled. Well, I mean, the agreement is cancelled, yes. But if, for example, President Zuma and President Putin sign a new agreement like that, people would have to go to court again and try to cancel it. So, I mean, the fight is far not over, even if uh, uh, the decision of court was a very big victory for civil society in South Africa. Right now, South Africa is looking at the future energy policy. It's identifying energy policy for the next 30 years, a true IRP, integrated resource plan. And it's very important that people get organized. Uh, they uh, make their opinion possible. You mentioned that um, nuclear is the most expensive and um, the consequences are dire. So what are you proposing as an activist um, that uh, maybe South Africa could uh, look into uh, as a a source of energy which is less dangerous and uh, less expensive? The best um, available uh, energy mix that could be for South Africa. It could be wind power, solar power, geothermal energy, biomass, and biogas. If South Africa would decide it wants to go for that kind of mix in the future, then um, I think in a couple of decades, South Africa could become uh, a leader. Uh, absolutely there on the African continent in energy field. It will have great energy system that will not depend on any kind of fuel cost, and it wouldn't have these really bad uh, long-term consequences. That was Russian anti-nuclear activist, environmentalist Vladimir Slivyak speaking to Tsepo Pachane. Let's go back in time to today in 1994. The African Intervention Force opens fire on the Liberian Presidential Palace in an attempt to remove leaders of the recent coup. That's today in history in the year 1994.
Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Aid agencies are appealing for more funds to help support the nearly 400,000 Rohingya who have fled the violence and are now in Bangladesh. The BBC's correspondent Justin Rowlett has been speaking to some of them. We're on the Naf River on a little launch. This is the river that divides Myanmar from Bangladesh. And uh, this is one of the main crossing points for refugees. They're coming across in these beautiful black crescent-shaped fishing boats, packed with people. Family groups are huddled together, a few belongings with them. On Monday night, one of these boats capsized. Nine bodies were washed up on this beach by the river. It isn't unusual to find bodies, says a local man. A week ago, I saw 17 corpses here, he says. Many people die on the crossing. Another local, Bashir Ahmad, says he saw three bodies today. Ten people are still missing. They were in a boat that could fit ten people, but there were 20 people in there. That's why it sank. The local police chief says the remains of about 90 people have been recovered from the river since the violence in Myanmar broke out two and a half weeks ago. But the real number who've died is probably far higher. It is evidence of just how perilous the journeys the Rohingya refugees have made. And beside the river there is more evidence of what these refugees have sacrificed. Hundreds of cattle sold by refugees to local traders. These animals often represent most of a peasant farmer's wealth, a local trader, Amanullah, tells me. They're fleeing the atrocities in Myanmar. They're coming with their families and they don't have anything. So whatever we buy, that helps them to survive. Listen, we can see what one, two, three, four, five huge fires burning over in Myanmar today. How often do you see these fires? We have seen these fires often, but there are fewer now. Earlier they burned the majority of the villages. Now they are burning the rest. Well, the sun has just set and we've just got to the graveyard where five of the bodies that were found today have been buried. They're under a banyan tree right next to the Naf River and uh, they're just five mounds of earth, each one marked just with a twig with a few leaves on it. It's, um, it's a pathetic and, and very sad memorial. And looking across the river now, 
Now the sun's set. I can see the red glow of the fires burning over in Myanmar. And that report by the BBC's Justin Rodit. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, um, Anne Musan. The headlines, the future of hundreds of corruption charges against South Africa's President Jacob Zuma remains unclear after the Supreme Court of Appeal reserved judgment on the President's application. Select to convene a double troika summit of heads of state and government in South Africa's capital Pretoria after recent political and insecurity developments in Lesotho. And Amnesty International has evidence that Burmese security forces have burnt dozens of Rohingya Muslim villages in Myanmar. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Today, the world community is observing the International Day of Democracy. This year's theme of democracy and conflict prevention focuses on the critical need to strengthen democratic institutions to promote peace and stability. Democracy is promising because the principles, institutions and rules associated with democratic practice seek to manage inevitable social conflicts in deeply divided and less conflicted societies alike. For this reason, many deeply divided post-war societies have turned to democracy as a way to exit intractable conflict. Various activities and events will be held around the world to have a more deeper understanding of this and promote democracy in general. Now, to talk more about this, we are now joined on the line by Professor Thomas Mandrup, Associate Professor at the Security Institute for Governance and Leadership in Africa at Stellenbosch University here in South Africa. Prof, thank you so much for joining us and a very good morning. Good morning. Good morning to listeners. Now, it's International Day of Democracy today. What does democracy mean today? You know, democracy means it's a, it's a way to secure that the whole population and the whole society actually got the the influence that that, that they need. That means that no one has the right to have authority and to to have uh, just to take power and control everything by themselves. Which means that there's some kind of accountability. That's a parliamentary oversight. That you have strong institutions. There's a rule of law. Uh, which I think is very important. Um, so, yeah, so, and basically you can argue when you talk in an African context, that is where we, we have some problems at the moment. Now, in your view, what are the strengths and the particular weaknesses of the continent's democratic parties and institutions, and how do they contribute to conflict management? I think uh, we take the strength first is that we've increasingly seen, uh, of course, uh, multi-party elections uh, during the uh, for the last couple of years. The problem is, of course, you can't conflate um, multi-party elections with democracy necessarily because democracy is also how you treat you know, minorities, how you treat opposition, so, and also how, you, how they run up to elections. And I think uh, we have, have several examples in Zimbabwe, recently in Kenya, uh, 
that where you have a government party or majority parties misusing power, abusing power to stay in power and using the shield of and, and, and cloud of uh, multi-party elections to say that. So it means that you have to have a democracy. You have to have very, very strong institutions. And it, actually, it was, you can argue that, that democracy, one thing with democracy is it requires very strong uh, in, in, in national institutions, state institutions, to control and to, to make sure that the frames of, of society is intact in, in and in control. And that is where we have, we have the challenges, because it's kind of, when you set democratic forces free, you set a lot of forces free, and, and, and you can't control it. And that's, that's where you need the, you know, your judicial framework, you need the security institutions to be in place. That's where you have the challenges in the Congo, where you have the challenges in the Kenya, you have all this kind of thing. So that is what we challenge at the moment. Now, let's speak about the African Union um, in particular. They have made considerable strides um, in its efforts to, to, uh, towards democracy, promotion and uh, peace building on the continent. And this is since 2000 when uh, it adopted its Constitutive Act. Would you say the AU is on the right path? Uh, that's, of course, a big question. Um, yeah, AAU is on the part in many ways. It tries to put, and most, most importantly, it's putting down the, the judicial, I should say, a normative framework for how the Africa should uh, function. The question, of course, and the challenge, big challenge for, for, the, for the African Union and as member states is that uh, it's the implementation. Um, because the judicial frameworks about human security and good governance and democracy and so forth are there, you have, as we have, you have the electoral com- commissions going out to, ch- to check on, on the elections going on and all the kind of things. But the actual you know, implementation of these principles and, and, and making sure that member states are living up to these principles they signed up for uh, when ch- signing the AEU Charter, is, that is where it's lacking. And it's also where it, makes, it, it becomes more difficult, because to what extent should the African Union, as it has the right within the African Charter, to actually to intervene in uh, sovereign states? How, to what extent should it do that? And how to what extent has it got the support of the member states to actually implement that part of, of the African Union's mandate? And that is where we, 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 lack, we still miss to, uh, to see the AU pay, pay a, a very important part, because AU could, within the judicial framework it's got, play that role to go in and, and actually intervene in states where the democracy and the good governance is lacking. Now, do you think there's a good understanding of a democracy and conflict prevention on the continent? Uh, that, of course, I think one of the problems with all this is, is especially when you, you mentioned the African Union, but also the regional organizations, is that it's very much, it's very much an elite project. If you ask people on the ground, uh, whether it being in the Eastern Congo or in Sudan or that, what is the role of the AU and what is the role of, of, of knowledge of democracy and things like that? It, 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 that is where we are lacking. Uh, and that is the problem is that we have a, a democracy in Africa is very much uh, uh, an elite project. Um, what's a, a famous Africanist a scholar who probably has talked about the resurfacing of elites, which means that it's the same people, the same families that actually control small elites that actually comes back and, and control politics and politics in many African states and I'm saying everywhere but in many African states, are very concentrated around the capital and some elites, elitist families. And it's actually a question of how, who control most of, 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 of that. 
And that means that that is, of course, a democratic problem uh, because people are not uh, participating in democratic processes. And that, that is, that's, of course, a huge challenge. And that's because there's sometimes, and this back to my point about that, that because people vote, it's not necessarily a democracy. Um, you still have democratic problems. It's, it's the way the knowledge of what they're voting about and, and of the ability and, and, and space for opposition to operate that actually tells you something about uh, how. And then, of course, the big cha- challenge for, for a, chain, a, a test for democracies, of course, when a, a majority party loses power. It's, for instance, you could take the African context, how is the ANC going to, to react, if, which could be a, a case, if it's going to lose power in 2019? Will they accept that? That is the big test for South African democracy, for instance, as it would be the big test for, 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 for Kagame in Rwanda, which is becoming more and more authoritarian because you risk uh, losing power and so forth. So that is the big test, and, and it's back to the whole question that the basic knowledge of democratic processes and what democracy is about in the broader population, especially in, in a number of African states, is, of course, is absent, or is, is not where we want it to be. How do we get it right? I think it's a good question. Of course, it, it takes time, uh, and it takes time. And but I think it's it's it also means that the you mentioned African Union. African Union needs to start implementing the normative principles that it actually um, uh, that it, it has in in its charter, and it, it has start to be serious about these things. But the problem, of course, African Union is African Union is a product of its member states, and and many of the if you look at the freedom uh, and you can like freedom charter, freedom house charter or not, on, on the democracy index and all that. But what if you look at that index from from 2017, is all very few African states who are considered free democratic states. It's South Africa, it's Namibia, it's Botswana, and a few others, Ghana. So in reality, you have a problem here that you have a, a, a union and have a continent which have a democratic deficit, which is, and you have an organisation that is a product of its member states, uh, and that is where we, we. So we have to start implementing the normative principles. But then we have to look at the positive side. For instance, that the Kenyan, when the Kenyan High Court goes in and uh, annul the elections in Kenya, that is a very positive sign. That would not have happened 10 years ago. So that's a positive sign. So there is, we have positive signs, uh, which we have to, to stick on. But we also have um, increasingly authoritarian tendencies in Ethiopia, in, in, in Rwanda, and other places. Uh, in Zimbabwe, has been, we have democratic problems for a long time. So we, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a loop side. It's both, we have both tensions and we're at a critical stage at the moment. Prof, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to leave it there for now. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. That was Professor Thomas Mandrup, Associate Professor at the Security Institute for Governance and Leadership in Africa at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, joining us on the line. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives.
Ethnic cleansing, two words used by the UN Secretary-General to describe the plight suffered by the Rohingya, a mainly Muslim community who've been fleeing in droves from Myanmar and crossing the border to find temporary refuge in neighboring Bangladesh. They say they've long been the victim of persecution, a charge denied by the authorities in Myanmar. While the authorities in Myanmar face a growing wave of international criticism, how is this crisis being perceived in the country itself? The BBC's Fergal Keane reports from the country's second city, Mandalay. The sense of a Buddhist nation is powerfully felt in this city. Across the still water of the moat in the centre of Mandalay is the old royal palace, symbol of an idealised pre-colonial world where rulers and people were united under Buddhism. Walking near the palace, I heard echoes of current events. Standing by the road, men and women were making a collection, ostensibly for all refugees in Rakhine State. But I heard again the line repeated all over Myanmar now. Muslims were being burned out by Muslim terrorists. The Mandalay charity organization is run by Kin Mong Tint. They are not only destroying Buddhist homes, but also Muslim houses. I don't want all the terrorist groups. This is a war about the occupation of the territory. They are killing all the people they see and destroying all the houses they see. It was meant to be very different. A year ago, the pro-democracy, pro-human rights party of Aung San Suu Kyi became the government. But the country's de facto leader has refused to either condemn the security crackdown or call for military restraint. In Mandalay, the party's security spokesman is Miet Ong Mo, and he sees Rakhine Buddhists as the victims. What do you believe is happening in Rakhine State? I just want to say what my own view is, he told me. I only see that Rakhine ethnic people have been attacked. There's very little sympathy here for the persecuted minority in Rakhine state. And if Aung San Suu Kyi was to say or do anything that was considered as showing solidarity with them, she would be politically exposed. That's something the military understands well as it continues with its brutal crackdown. The perception here among many is that it's Burmese Buddhism that is under siege from militant Islam. These men belong to an organization that's done much to stoke fear. The monks of Maba Ta, a hardline nationalist movement with much popular support. The organization was banned six months ago by Aung San Suu Kyi's government. They refused to recognize the existence of the Rohingya, referring to them as Bengalis. So I wondered how monk Aindar Saka Bewinta felt about her response to the Rakhine crisis. Doang San Suu Kyi is on the right side in this Bengali issue and she is speaking the right things. So I welcome her very happily. Because of her position, some people are criticizing her with lies. And that report by the BBC's Fegal Keen. It's 8.46 and our economics update up next with Tabisoluhoku. Thanks, Lulu.
South Africa's energy regulator, NERSA, has given the power utility the go-ahead to consult on its proposed tariff hike for next year. ESCOM is seeking a 19% increase for the year that begins in April 2018. It says the increase will offset financial losses brought on by the technical recession. The hike will apply only to electricity bought directly from ESCOM. Those who get their power from municipalities could pay up to 27% more. South Africa's Energy Regulator's Head of Communication, Charles Lebela. It basically affects ESCOM's direct customers. The 19.9% is an average of the impact that allowable revenues that ESCOM has requested you know, from the energy regulator that it will result you know, in that 19.9%. Maybe just to give the, the, the figure, the allowable revenue that ESCOM has applied for is uh, $219,514,000,000. The South African Federation of Trade Unions has called for workers to have a direct representative on the board of the Public Investment Corporation to ensure transparency. This amid denials by the board of the PIC that it had been captured. The Public Investment Corporation manages pension funds of South African government employees. SAFTU's General Secretary, Zuelinzi Mavavi. We are worried now about the report that... Uh the PIC board is intending to uh, to uh, replace apparently somebody who uh, they don't trust fully with a blue-eyed boy of the Gupta family, uh, Brian Molife. And we want to warn them, hands off the public service employee pension funds. The Zambia Institute of Chartered Accountants has called on the government to clear the current turbulence created by Patriotic Front supporters who want Felix Mutati fired as finance minister. Zika says the current uncertainty over Mutati's future was hurting the country's economic stability and could negate recent signs of economic recovery. Mutati is currently under pressure from PF supporters who want him to choose between being leader of a faction of the movement for multi-party democracy or continue serving as finance minister. The Uganda Bureau of uh, National Bureau of Standards has signed a memorandum of understanding with Kampala Butchers and the Traders Association to improve quality of meat products and ensure compliance to the food safety standards. The MOU is said to be a good opportunity for UNBS to work with the Established Industry Association to coordinate the development of standards and codes of practice relevant for improving the quality and safety of meat and meat products. Nigeria should see a bumper cocoa harvest in the coming season as late rains have helped to boost production. President of the Cocoa Association of Nigeria, Sayina Ruman, says they expect output for the new season, which starts in October, to hit between 300,000 tons and 320,000 tons. The cocoa season in Nigeria, the world's fourth biggest producer, runs from October to September, with an October to February main crop and a smaller light or mid crop that begins 
in April or May and runs through September. The US dollar trades at 13.14 in South Africa. It's at 10.7 in Botswana and at 9.37 in Zambia. 0.75 to the British pound, 0.84 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,330, platinum 980 dollars an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $55.28 a barrel. My name is Tabi Solohoku and you're on Africa Rise and Shine with Lulu Gabu. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off foot football news. South African Premiership side, Supersports United, who will continue their African safari when they host Zesco United of Zambia in a CAF Confederations Cup quarterfinal at Lucas Masterpiece Muripe Stadium in Pretoria tonight. Supersports captain Dean Fairman believes the fact that they held their own against TP Mazembe in their early stages, they can stand up against the very best on the continent. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's a game that we've been looking forward to for a, for a while now from when we had the draw. We know Zesco's a big club on the continent. We know it's going to be very difficult, but we've grown in confidence as the tournament's gone on and um, our results against TP in our group, I think that, that really allowed us to grow and believe that we can go far in this tournament. So on the back of a few recent very good results and performances, we're, we're looking forward to going into uh, what's going to be a very tough two-legged uh, affair. And the Zambians have been watching... Supersports United games for a while and will come into this match knowing all about their Southern African counterparts. Zesco United captain Jacob Banda has more. Yeah, I've prepared very well. Uh, looking at the way Supersport is playing currently, I think they are a good team. They are swift in a counter-attack. So I think the coach has done his, his, his part and I think it's now up to us players to do our part now. I think Supersport is a very good team. We have, given them, we have given them respect and I think to our side we have prepared very well into this game. I think we are looking forward to the game tomorrow. The morale is, is high and the, some of the players the best time to play in this competition so they are looking forward to, to impress. In cricket news, former pro chairs and South African cricket stalwarts Mark Boucher and Jacques Callis have begged the recent appointment of West Indian Otis Gibson as Russell Domingo's successor and the new Proteus coach. Gibson is scheduled to arrive in South Africa early next week to converge with Proteus squad ahead of the two-test match series against Bangladesh starting at the end of this month in Pochestrum, South Africa's northwest province. Boucher, who played with Gibson during their border bears days back in the 90s, says he's looking forward to what the former England bowling coach will bring to the Proteus. Yeah, look at the background. I know Gibber very well uh, from the border days. And so I've had a lot of time to spend, not necessarily playing with him, but being around him. And he's a great person, a great human being, a wealth of knowledge in both the batting and the bowling side of things. Obviously, him coming from England, a very successful England side as well. You picked up a lot of things from them. Also coached the West Indies for a while, uh, where there's a lot of politics involved in the West Indies. So he would have learned from a couple of things like that as well. So yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be something new. He's got to come back into South African cricket as a coach now, not a player as before. He's got to understand 
understand what country he's working in and it's going to be a couple of changes that he's going to have to make mentally. Like I know he said that he wanted all the Proteus players to play and unfortunately at Titans we can't play all the Proteus players but um, that's something he'll learn about and I'm sure that they'll help him along the way as well but certainly the wealth of knowledge that he brings uh, travelling around the world, being coaching in the West Indies and coaching as assistant in for the England side, the players in England they speak very highly of him as well. So I think it's something fresh which is good, I think it's something that we need. We haven't had an international coach in, in ages. And finally, 17 national anti-doping organizations have demanded that Russia is banned from the 2018 Winter Olympics. Less than five months before the start of the Pyongyang Games, the group said the International Olympic Committee's IOC refusal to hold Russia accountable for one of the biggest scandals in sports history, imperils clean athletes and the future of the Olympic movement. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. At the Sawa, SADC leaders meet in Pretoria to discuss political tensions in Lesotho and world leaders prepare for the United Nations General Assembly. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week from myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magaza and Jane Rabotata, technical producer Sihlendobu and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-630-03327. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa is mishka with a song titled payday